Thank you. Open your Bibles to John chapter 3. John chapter 3, we'll be looking at verses 13 through 15. John chapter 3, verses 13 through 15. And as we're uh, working through these ideas of the love of God and what it means to, to say that God loves us and to know what it means to say that God loves us, in the middle of this passage about the new birth, Jesus Christ says something very interesting to, uh, to Nicodemus, and he uses two Old Testament stories that we're going to make, or allusions to which we'll make reference today. But if you would, just look at the text with me, and let's read it, and then we'll dive into the sermon. John 3, verses 13 through 15. No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness... Even so, the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in Him will have eternal life. This whole died two Old Testament references. One, the serpent being lifted up, and then secondly, the, the phrase, Son of Man. Every public building in the United States has a similar-looking exit sign over the door. You see them around the building here. You see them in red. Uh, these signs point the way to egress in the case of fire or other emergencies. All exit signs must be illuminated and have a standby power source to keep them lit even when they are, the power goes out and they're supposedly supposed to stay lit for at least one and a half hours. So here's the basic idea. In the tragic incidents or circumstance of a fire, smoke fills the room and it's confusing. Uh, even if the power goes out, the emergency signs stay on. And so you look through the smoke and you look through the fire and the haze and then you look for the emergency sign and you walk towards that. You go towards the sign. And here's the basic idea. You look and you live. If you look at those signs and you follow through the smoke and the haze to the exit sign, that's going to lead you to immediate egress so you can get out of the building. And so you look and you live. We live in a world that's filled with the noxious fumes of sin, uh, the the pain of our own choices, the fallen nature that we all bear within us. And in the haze and the smog and the confusion of this world in which we live, uh, sometimes we don't know where to go, and sometimes we don't know how to make it out of this fog of life that, that we find ourselves in. But the idea is that God has given us a cross and an empty tomb and His Son, Jesus Christ. And in the smoke and the fog and the haze, of this life and the sin-induced confusion in which we all live, we look to Jesus and we live. And so the idea is we look and we live. We look and we live. In this passage, we see that Jesus uses this Old Testament story of Moses in the wilderness and the serpent that was lifted up, and he uses that as an illustration of the cross. And from this, you and I can learn to look and to live. I do not know what circumstances of life brought you here today. I do not know what your life looks like, the trajectory and all the choices that you've made and perhaps the sins that you've committed and the pain that has brought you here today and perhaps even the guilt you feel about even coming into church. But what I would say to you today is wherever you've been, whatever you've done, wherever you find yourself in life today, look to Jesus and live. Look and live. Look and live. And today, we're going to challenge you to look to Jesus and to live. Four key ideas come out of this text, this simple three verses that we read this morning. First, Christ descended. Christ descended. Do you notice what it says in verse 13? No one has ascended into heaven, 
except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. A lot going on in that verse. And let me point out a few wrong ideas that float through our culture and to which Jesus actually makes reference. Do you notice what it says in verse 13? No one has ascended into heaven. Do you see that there? No one has ascended into heaven. In Jesus' day, 2,000 years ago, it was very popular in that culture for people to claim to have visited heaven. And so there were uh, apocryphal works that were written down where people claimed to have a visit to heaven. Some saint ascended to heaven. Some uh, religious uh, guru of some sort claimed to have ascended to heaven, and they would come back with stories. These things were popular in Jesus' day, as they are in our own day. But what I would point out to you is this text says, who has ascended into heaven except Jesus? Who has? What does it say? No one. No one has ascended into heaven. I would caution you about these uh, religious travel journals that people sell in the Christian bookstores about supposedly traveling to heaven. The genre has taken on a life of its own. Near-death experiences. People return with fanciful stories of heaven. I have a few examples. 2010, a young boy named Cotton Burpo, four years old. Uh, the story is told by his father, Todd. He claims that Cotton met the Holy Spirit in heaven. He returned to heaven and came back, and Cotton said the Holy Spirit is kind of blue. Cotton Burpo, heaven is for real. 2012, my journey to heaven, what I saw and how it changed my life. Marvin J. Besteman. 2012, an orthopedic surgeon, Mary Neal, injured, I think, in a kayak accident, wrote a book to heaven and back about her journey to heaven. Baptists haven't skipped out on this. Baptist pastor Don Piper, 2004, wrote a book, 40 Minutes in Heaven. A neurosurgeon, Eben Alexander, Harvard trained no less, wrote a book in 2012, Proof of Heaven, A Neurosurgeon's Journey into the Afterlife. One of the more famous ones was 1992, Embraced by the Light, Betty Eady. She claimed to visit heaven. There have been so many of these books, I think I'm going to write one. I'm going to claim that I went to heaven, and when I got there, all the angels were wearing royals hats, and that it's a bad idea to be a Yankee fan is what I derive from all that. And all these stories about going to heaven, what I would caution you is, you read these stories and invariably, they come up with some sort of bizarre doctrine. It is not uncommon for odd doctrinal things which are completely inconsistent with Scripture to come out of these stories. Someone else's subjective experience about some journey they claim to have to heaven is not the basis for your truth and your salvation. No one has ascended to heaven except he who descended from heaven. That's Jesus Christ. Don't put a lot of stock in these stories about people claiming to go to heaven. No one has ascended to heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. And so he, not only did we have these warnings about those who claim to have been to heaven, but notice what it says. No one has ascended to heaven except he who descended from heaven. Uh, we must be careful and use some discernment. Jesus said no one has ascended to heaven. And again, in Jesus' day, many stories circulated about bygone saints who had ascended to heaven, received special insight into God's ways. Jesus insists no one has gone to heaven in such a way as to return to talk about heavenly things. But Jesus Christ claims to be able to speak about heaven. He tells Nicodemus, you must be born again to see the kingdom of God. Here's what one uh, author said, a guy named D.A. Carson. He said, Jesus Christ can speak about heavenly things not because he ascended into heaven from a home on earth. 
and then descended to tell others of his experience, but because heaven was his home in the first place. Do you see the difference? Jesus descended from heaven. He can tell you about heaven because that's where he's from. I'm from the state of Georgia. I, I can tell you all about Georgia. I can tell you things that the travel guide won't tell you. I can tell you about a little place called High Show Falls up in my home county of Paulding County, Georgia. Beautiful little place. A little trail goes to a cemetery about a quarter mile through the woods. It's absolutely beautiful. I can tell you about a barbecue restaurant in Powder Springs, Georgia called Johnny's Barbecue. where they all, It's, it's a kind of a weird place because it's half barbecue, half gun store, but they have the best barbecue you can imagine. And... I can tell you about I can tell you about a hike up to Amicalola Falls that's absolutely gorgeous and beautiful and which side to take there's different sides of the creek and I, I can tell you about a little restaurant down in Savannah right across from St. John's Cathedral that serves the best chicken and waffles you can imagine and strawberry and waffles it's awesome I can tell you about all those things you know why it's not Georgia is not some place that I've visited Georgia is where I'm from and I know about these things because I'm from there. Jesus can tell you about heaven, not because he visited it, because it's his home. That's where he's from, and he has authority. And when he tells you things about uh, being forgiven and being at peace with God when you die, when you trust in him, you can take it to the bank. No one has ascended to heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Jesus came down. The word descended means came down. Jesus came down. This is a theme throughout the Bible. God is a coming down kind of God. God comes down to us. God came down at the Tower of Babel and dispersed the languages. God came down and made a covenant with Abraham. God came down on Mount Sinai and made a covenant with Moses and with the children of Israel. God came down and filled the temple with his glory. God came down and brought judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. God came down on Mount Carmel and he answered Elijah's prayer with fire. And God came down and he wrote on the wall in uh, Daniel chapter 5 at Belshazzar's feast. And God came down in the person of Jesus Christ. He's a coming down kind of God. Boy, that's why we sing that old song. Heaven came down. Glory filled my soul. Do you realize that God comes down every time somebody gets saved? When somebody gets saved and they trust Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, the same God that came down in the Old Testament on Mount Sinai, the same God that came down on Mount Carmel comes down into a human heart and changes them. Don't you let the atheist and the secularist tell you this is a closed universe, just a system of causes, and there's nothing you can do about it. This is my Father's world, and he comes down and he changes heart, and he can change yours. He can come down and change your heart right now. The same God who came down on Mount Sinai wants to come down and take up residence in your life. No one ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Well, there's so much more to be said, but let me point out to you this phrase, Son of Man, don't miss that. Phrase, Son of Man, is the first of two Old Testament images in this passage. I, it, boys and girls, when Jesus says, Son of man, he's not referring to just being a son of his father. That little phrase, son of man, is a title for the Messiah. It comes from Daniel chapter 7. Read it on your own. But the phrase son of man is it's a term which bo joins both humanity and deity. In Daniel 7, the son of man approaches the throne of the ancient of days. Try to think of it this way. Imagine a brilliant engineer who designed a new skyscraper here in Wichita. And not only did he design the building and, and work with his team to get the plans together, but when they came out to start digging the footings 
Uh, he got out there on a, a bulldozer and was working with the grading team to grade out that place. That's, that's what happened with Jesus Christ. God didn't stay distant from this universe. He came down and got in the middle of it. He, he came down. I know that sometimes life seems so hard and so confusing, and we wonder, does Jesus care? Does God care? Listen carefully. God came down, and Jesus came down, and just as the drama team and the praise team so beautifully displayed for us, he understands pain and rejection. He was nailed to a cross, though he'd done nothing wrong, and he understands what you're going through. Other people may not understand, but I promise you Jesus did. He's a coming down kind of God. Not only did he descend, but... We see why he descended. It's, it's a reference in this passage. He descended, but then we see our deadly state of sin, our deadly condition of sin. And he uses a fascinating Old Testament story to make his point. This is a reference to Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 through 9. Look at what it says in verse 14. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Now what does that mean, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. If you don't know, let me tell you quickly. It's an Old Testament story. The children of Israel were wandering through the desert for 40 years. You know why they were wandering for 40 years, right? Because even back then, men wouldn't stop and ask for directions. So that's why they're wandering. So they're wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. And they get to a point where they are being bitten by poisonous serpents and people are dying. So God tells Moses to do something unusual, only time in history this has ever happened. He said, make a bronze replica of one of these serpents, put it on a pole in the middle of the camp, and when people are bitten by one of these snakes, look at that serpent on a pole and they won't die, they will live. You read Numbers 21 on your own. That's what happened. They're bitten by the serpents. Moses puts this uh, replica of a serpent, a bronze replica up on a pole in the middle of the camp, and don't, get, don't try to get hung up on the details. Here's what happened. They are bitten by the serpent, right? They're dying. They look at the serpent on the pole and they live. You got it? Don't overcomplicate it. They are bitten. They are dying. They look at the serpent on the pole and what happens? They, they live. So they looked and they, they looked and lived. And that poisonous bite of the stake is a powerful illustration of our human sin nature what a tragic picture of sin these uh, snakes would bite deep into the flesh injecting deadly venom uh, hemiotoxic these are blood toxins it causes necrosity uh, this is the death of tissue these these this venom can also be an anticoagulant it, it prevents blood from from uh, clotting it can destroy and alter normal cell functioning. Some are even neurotoxins. It leads to renal failure. And so when that serpent would bite and that poison begins cursing through the veins and this person is headed for death, and that is a picture of our own sin nature, that we have been infected with sin and that uh, we are born with a natural tendency to rebel. Imagine the agony and grief and the burning pain and the venom and the death coursing through someone's veins. They were bitten by a snake, and they died. And all of us are under God's curse without a sin, uh, because of sin. And we will die. The Bible says in Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. Someday an announcement will go out, and there will be an obituary printed in a newspaper or online somewhere. And it's not going to be for someone else. It's going to be for you or for me. 
And in an auditorium like this, they're going to bring a casket, and they're going to roll it to the front, and there's a sermon that's going to be preached, and it's not going to be for someone else. It's going to be for you, and it's going to be for me. We all have an appointment with death, with each tick of the clock, and which each beat of the heart, we're moving closer and closer and closer. Death is coming. Death is coming. Death is coming. And the question at that point, when you die, no one's really going to care how much money you had or how much pleasure you had or all the things you did in life. The only thing that's going to matter at that point is what did you do with Jesus? We have this deadly sin problem. It is universal. It is the same problem regardless of whether someone is in Cambodia or Mongolia or Zambia or Wichita, Kansas. It is the same problem, universal to all humanity. The sin problem is courses through our brain. Spurgeon said this. And see, here's what happens. We think, well, if I just leave it alone, it'll get better. Sin does not get better if you leave it alone. In fact, Spurgeon said, let sin alone and it will develop into miseries far more extreme than ever the bite of the serpent could have been and sin is so destructive and this this idea that uh, somehow sin is just a toy to be uh, easily tossed aside and forgotten my wife worked as an emergency room nurse for seven years in Kansas City Kansas Wyandotte County I would not have considered myself naive about the ways of the world at that time in my life I thought I knew what was going on I thought I was informed but seven years of my wife working in an emergency room as an ER nurse, I feel like the country boy who'd come to town. And the things that people do to the human body in the main name of pleasure, and the pain and the heartache and the brokenness and, and the death and the disease that I saw from human sin. There were nights, uh, my wife worked a weekend option for years. She worked every Friday and Saturday night. And there were times I wanted to go down there on Friday night and get my Bible and stand in front of the ER room's door and say, look to Jesus and live. Stop hurting yourselves. Stop cutting yourself. Stop destroying yourself. Look to Jesus and live. Look to Jesus and live. And sin is so deadly. So we see that he descended. We see the deadly problem we have of sin. But then notice what else. Not only is this deadly problem of sin, we see that Jesus died for sin. Notice what it says in verse 14. Look again. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Lifted up. Be lifted up. In the Gospel of John, this little phrase, be lifted up, that's cross language. That is reference to Jesus being lifted up on the cross. And the idea is that just as this serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, and they looked to him, and they were miraculously cured by God of their bite from this uh, toxin from the serpent. Jesus was lifted up on the cross and we've infected with sin. But when we look to him, we can look to him and look and live. The problem is we look to all the wrong things. Instead of looking to Jesus, we look to everything else. We look to all the wrong things. We look to sex. We live in a culture infatuated with sex. And each encounter leaves you more and more lonely and afterward more and more empty. And I say, look to Jesus and live. We look to romance. You realize the word love is spelled L-O-V-E, right? That's two vowels, L and V, and two, uh, excuse me, that's two consonants, L and V, and two vowels, O and E, and two fools, you and me. That's how romance works, right? It's love, and people look to romance. I've mentioned this before. I'm confused as a counselor. Half the people come to me saying, I'm looking for the person of my dreams. The other half of the people come to me and say, I married someone I thought was the person of my dreams. I don't know what y'all want. You're schizophrenic. I mean, which one is it? And so uh, people look to romance. Listen, 
Another fallen human being will never meet your deepest needs. And if you're looking for romance, if I just meet the right woman, if I just meet the, meet the right man, everything's going to be great. You're looking in the wrong place. Look to Jesus and live. Uh, we look to sex. We look to romance. And it's even worse now with eHarmony. I, we didn't have eHarmony back when, uh, uh, when Lisa and I were dating. I met my wife the old-fashioned way. I was on a date with another girl. That's how I met her. So <laughs> another fallen human being will never meet your needs. We looked at alcohol and drugs. Glenn Campbell, who died not too long ago, the famous uh, guitarist of, of amazing ability. Glenn Campbell, I read his biography and autobiography. He said that he started using cocaine not when he was at the bottom, but when his career was at the top, right after uh, Rhinestone Cowboy came out, his biggest hit ever. He started using cocaine then. He was looking for more pleasure and more thrills and, and alcohol and, and drugs and meth and the, these scourges of our society. And if I just get one more hit, it's going to be okay. And if I just score one more time, it's going to be all right. And I'm telling you, look to Jesus and live. Look to Jesus and live. Hollywood and music and movies, we look to them. I, uh, I, I really want to ask you, we, we look to music stars and do you really want to look to Blake Shelton as your model for life? Anybody that would leave Miranda Lambert for Gwen Stefani? I mean, come on, man. I mean, I mean, is that really the pattern you want to follow in life? Thank you, sister, for helping a preacher out. That means so much to me. I was so glad to hear Brother Ryan reading the Bible with enthusiasm this morning. That means so much to me. But um, uh, the, the, the t we looked all the, do you really want to look to Hollywood? You want to look to Madonna? Uh, these people that claim to be so avant-garde and they claim to be so uh, progressive and they know all the things that we backwards Christians don't know. How has life worked out for them? Look at the string of relationships they leave behind. I'm telling you, don't look to Hollywood. Look to Jesus and live. Some of you men say, well, I'm tough. Yeah, I take care of myself. I don't need somebody dying for me. I'm a man. Okay, all right. Well, I can understand that. Uh, one of my favorite boxers of all time was George Foreman. George Foreman was a, a man's man. He's a Christian now. He got saved. And uh, George Foreman won the gold medal at the 68 Olympics. And George Foreman was uh, as hard a puncher as you will ever see in the history of boxing. So in 1974, he and Muhammad Ali had this fight they called the Rumble in the Jungle. Any of you remember this? It was over in Africa. They fought. And so this is the famous fight where Ali knew he couldn't outpunch Foreman, but he, he adopted a strategy. Some of you guys heard of this, rope-a-dope. You ever heard of this? That means for the first four or five rounds, all Muhammad Ali did was he got in this right here, and he just let George Foreman wail on him for four or five rounds. And it worked. Go ahead and cut to the spoiler alert. Ali wins the fight. But for the first four or five rounds, Foreman is punching him and punching him and punching him. And I saw an interview with George Foreman. He said in the fourth round, Ollie was up against the ropes. And he said, I hit him as hard as I've ever hit any man in my life. And Ollie looked through his gloves and said, is that all you got, Foreman? He said, yeah, that's all I got. <laughs> he said, I knew at that point this was not going to go the way I'd hoped. What's the reason I tell you that story? Guys, as tough as you think you are, somebody out there somewhere is just a little bit tougher than you. And you better look to Jesus and live. Look to Jesus and live. We look to all the wrong things. We look to money. And uh, I, listen, I've, I've been broke and I've been 
successful in life. And I'm just telling you, it's better to be successful than being broke. I promise you. But listen, money will not solve your deepest need. You know what Zig Ziglar said? You know how much money is enough? How much is enough? Just a little bit more. It never satisfies. Look to Jesus and live. We look to all the wrong things. We look to strength and tough and money. and Look at all these people, Bernie Madoff, Ken Lay, all these other people that uh, deceive so many well-meaning investors. Look to Jesus and live. Their money didn't satisfy. But notice what else it says. Jesus says, if I be lifted up. Did you notice that? I be lifted up. I'm just making a point to the church here. Our job is to lift up Jesus. We as evangelicals and Baptists in particular, sometimes we get into little cults of personality. Did you know that? Well, I like this pastor. I like that pastor. It's almost like we're kids with trading cards and baseball cards. No, well, I'll give you two R.C. Sproul's for one Adrian Rogers, whatever. And so we're, we get these little cults of personality. Listen, the purpose of the church is not to create a cult of personality. The purpose of the church is to lift up Jesus. Listen, Jesus changes lives. And pe- there is power in the name of Jesus. Jesus Christ invades this world and Jesus Christ transforms people, and we want to lift up Jesus. At Calvary, Jesus paid an infinite burden of sin for a finite period of time. Here's what one person said. To the outward eye, the cross was the uttermost in degradation, the death of a criminal. To the eye of the faith, it was God's supreme glory. Look to Jesus and live. Look to Jesus and live. Matthew Henry said this, None could redeem and save us except he whose justice had condemned us. Look to Jesus and live. So we see that he died for our sins. And that leads to really our response, which is our declaration of faith. Did you notice what it says? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him might have eternal life. Believes in him. Man, where's your belief at? What are you believing? Believe in Jesus. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. And faith in Jesus is not just a temporary faith where, oh, well, I've got this problem right now. This relationship has ended badly, and I need your help with this relationship. Oh, and God, I, I, you know, my money's tight right now, and I need your help with money. I'm not fussing at people for praying to God for those sort of things. That's not saving faith, though. Those are temporary faith. And sometimes we treat Jesus like a vacuum cleaner, right? If you have a mess in the floors, the children bring in dirt or something. Sometimes the husband brings in dirt. Well, you get the, you get the vacuum cleaner, and you vacuum it up. And when you get done with the vacuum cleaner, where do you place it? Back in the closet. And people, some people, their relationship with Jesus is like that. Jesus, got another mess. Need you to come clean it up. Got it. Okay, thank you. You can go back in the closet. That's not saving faith. That's temporary faith. It's not intellectual assent. Uh, it's not just knowing facts. I could talk to some of you people that are uh, huge bas- college basketball fans, and you could give me the list of every team that's won the Final Four in the national title in the last 10, 15, 20 years, and you could tell me the players and how many points Michael Jordan scored in his career. But you are not trusting any of those people for anything. They are just facts and trivia. Trusting Jesus is not just knowing trivia about the Bible. Trusting Jesus is trust, putting our trust in him where we transfer our trust from ourselves. I'm no longer trusting in what I can do, but Jesus, I'm trusting in what you've already done. Your death, burial, and resurrection, and giving my life to you, I'm putting all All I know of me to all I know of you. It's a transfer of trust. It is faith. Uh, Someone described faith this way, F-A-I-T-H. 
forsaking all, I trust him. That's saving faith. It's faith in Jesus Christ. It's our decision of faith. And you've got a decision to make for Christ. Will you believe on Christ or not? Because Jesus said that whosoever believes on him may have eternal life. But you need to know there's another side to eternity. There is eternal life. There's also eternal death. It's a place called hell. And so the question is, have you believed on Jesus in the way the Bible says? And I'm challenging you to look to Jesus and live. To look to him and live. The Spanish-American Civil uh, War, excuse me, not Civil War, but the Spanish-American War was a, um, was a mess. And we actually lost more soldiers to malaria than we lost to the bullets of the Spanish army. There was a, uh, an army surgeon named Walter Reed down in Cuba after the war. And in 1900 and 1901, he had this idea that he wanted to prove. He was convinced that mosquitoes were spreading the malaria. Now, that seems intuitive to us. That's something everyone knows. But at that time, this was groundbreaking science. And he wanted to prove that mosquitoes were spreading malaria. And the idea being, if, if you could prove that, then you take care of the mosquito problem and one has solved the malaria problem, which we now know to be true today. So there were several volunteers that allowed themselves to be bitten by mosquitoes they knew had been exposed to malaria patients. One of them was a nurse named Clara Moss. Clara Moss. Uh, she was a very devout Lutheran. She loved the Lord. And she was serving as a nurse. And on August 24th, 1901, she died from malaria. She, was not in, she had been uh, perfectly healthy. She volunteered to take part in this experiment where she was exposed to mosquitoes which had been exposed to malaria patients to prove Walter Reed's theory that it was the mosquitoes spreading the malaria. And in fact, there was a stamp produced uh, by the post office in her memory several years back. And it simply said at the bottom, she gave her life. She gave her life. Clara Moss died in 1901. Do you understand what happened? She was not infected, but she allowed herself to be infected that other people could be healed. You got it? Something like that was going on at the cross. At the cross, Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, tempted in all ways, just as we are, yet without sin, Jesus Christ on the cross took our sin debt and the sin of the world was laid on him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And the sin of the world was laid on him. In a way, he became infected, if you will, with, and he bore our sin debt on the cross and he died that you and I might live. But then he rose from the grave and he's alive today. And you remember how I told you God's a coming down kind of God? He wants to come down in your life right now. You, you have tried everything else. You have looked to sex, looked to Jesus and live. You have looked to money, looked to Jesus and live. You've looked to pleasure, looked to Jesus and live. You've looked to drugs and alcohol and looked to Jesus to live. You've looked everywhere and where has it left you but broken? This morning, look to Jesus and live. Every head bowed, every eye closed. No one looking up, no one looking around. I'm going to ask our praise team to come. I want to talk to two groups of people. Lisa's going to come and begin playing the piano for us. I want to talk to two groups of people. Listen very closely. Every head bowed, every eye closed. I'm going to ask that no one be leaving the auditorium during the invitation today. 
Listen very carefully. Some of you here, you've been Christians for a long time. And you know that the church is supposed to lift up Jesus. But somehow that simple truth has been lost. And maybe in your heart right now you just like to say, Dear God, I want my church to lift up Jesus Christ. I want my church to lift up Jesus. I want people to see Jesus and be saved. But perhaps you're here and we talked about all these different things. You have tried everything this world has to offer and it has left you broken. And this morning, this simple message, look and live. Look to Jesus and live. You say, Alan, how do I do that? Listen very carefully. You come to God on his terms and you pray a prayer like this. Dear God, I'm a sinner. I have hurt other people and I've hurt myself and my sin has ruined my life I'm asking you Jesus to save me forgive me and by faith I look to you for life come in my heart be my Lord be my Savior Jesus take out this heart of stone give me a new heart someone right now may be praying that prayer for the first time in your life in your minute I'm going to pray and after I'm done praying we're going to stand and sing every aisle in here leads right to the front and I'm going to ask you to step out come forward and take my hand and say brother Alan I want to look to Jesus and live today I want the life that Jesus offers Father, I pray in the name of Jesus Christ for people to be saved. I pray for men and women and boys and girls that need to look to Jesus and live. I pray for children that would look to Christ and live. I pray for adults who, God, they've tried everything this world has to offer. And today I pray they'd look to Jesus and live. And Father, I pray you'd save people. I ask it in Jesus' name.